Hello, something for Kate, Patreon people, party people. I'm Mikey Carl, the host of Hit Different, a fabulous weekly music culture podcast. My producer wrote fabulous. I'm going to go with insightful, edutaining, sometimes inspiring. Inspiring how? Great question. Glad you asked. Paul Dempsey is our guest host this week. Very, very special. And he's done the good thing. He's done a solid for all of you guys because a week earlier than anybody else in the whole goddamn world... You can listen to the bonus episode with Paul Dempsey where he talks about music that hit different from him when he was a kid watching his mum on stage. I think he says she was playing 300 shows per year. Very, very inspiring. And he takes us through, you know, big day outs. He takes us through touring with Bowie, some amazing Bowie anecdotes in there right up to today and some recent musical discoveries he's made. Yeah, it's incredibly interesting. And Dempsey doesn't suffer fools, even though he put up with Marcus Teague and I. He just gave us so much gold, and we want to give you that gold now ahead of time because you're good humans. Patreon, what a way to support artists in a very shitty time. (laughs) The regular episode of Hit Different with Paul will be out on Monday the 6th of September, so get over and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. Just search Hit Different in your podcast app. As I said on this bonus set with Paul, myself, and co-host Marcus Teague, he really takes us on a trip down memory lane without getting too sort of sickly and nostalgic he really just goes in for the good stuff and uh, as i said wait till you hear about the thin white duke and he had david bowie's doctor look after him at one stage that's pretty effing cool here it is the paul dempsey early release bonus episode of hit different view hot off the microphones enjoy friends Welcome to bonus episode, P. Dempsey, Sons of Kate, frontman, solo artist, raconteur, really nice dude, just generally a great human. Tell us the first time music hit different for you. Well, my first exposure to music was uh, my right in my house and, and with my family. My mum was a professional singer, uh, so one of my earliest memories is watching her and her sister singing Gaelic folk music in an Irish club that her and my stepfather uh, ran for about 10 years. Um, And she sang there. She did like 300 gigs a year for about 10 years. Um, So, and, you know, uh, there was always, the house was always just full of musicians, the people she played with, you know, half the time after the shows, they would end up back at our house and the concert would continue in our living room. And so, you know, that was definitely the first time that it was just like, oh, music, like, Everybody, everybody plays music. Everybody makes music. This is what you do. Um, mm. Did she play an instrument as well? She did, she did concert harp for a long time. Um, she had this massive, wow. you know, like <laughs> massive harp. I remember watching her, you know, getting it into its case and getting the case in the back of a tiny Ford Escort uh, to go off to her lessons <laughs> and stuff. So. She was really into the harp for a while, but mostly it was singing. And she she did some opera training as well, singing, as did my sisters. So I have three older sisters and they were all, you know, they are all musicians as well still and they were all training in opera. And so it was just music was everywhere. And then I guess the question of, you know, when did it sort of hit different to that, Mm -hmm. you know, after just being exposed to a lot of like Irish music and Gaelic music and opera, um, then I think it was, you know, just like the Saturday morning music shows uh, and like hearing David Bowie. Like I remember the – I'll never forget the first time I 
saw the music video to Ashes to Ashes. Oof. Uh, I think I, I must have been like five or six years old. And it just scared the shit out of me. And I was just <laughs> intrigued. Like I had to know about this guy. And and then like down the track a little more, then it was like my sisters giving me like hearing, you know, they were starting to go out to gigs and stuff. They were, Like they were going to see the birthday party and, and mm. Hunters and Collectors, you know, really early sort of like shows at the Seaview Ballroom and stuff. So I just remember stealing their cassettes and, you know, listening to Hunters and Collectors and stuff like that. Do you remember just with the Ashes to Ashes thing, uh, Paul, I think um, Bowie wanted to be very Kubrickian and it was shot on an East Sussex beach and they kind of did something with the film where they reversed all the colours. Did you have any nightmares about this? I remember I had nightmares about Touched by the Hand of God by New Water because I called up that 131166 pizza, whatever it was, and I heard that and I wasn't meant to call that. It was very controversial. And I, I felt like something came over me and I actually it scared the crap out of me that I'd done something bad and my body was feeling weird. I think it was just puberty. Yeah. Yeah, the, the ashes to ashes moment. Just take us right back into that lounge room and sort of looking over your shoulder going, you know, have I, <laughs> have I unleashed something here? <laughs> um i i remember my the feeling I, I do remember the feeling exactly and it was that i i felt um i was really worried for for david bowie i was really really concerned about his <laughs> well-being because well because at that point i had heard two songs you know uh you know space oddity so in one of the songs he was you know stuck in a tin can floating around in space drifting off into the void and in the other song, I'm, I'm watching him sort of being walked down a nightmare beach by these sort of dark figures in, in you know, black cloaks and weird hats and or, or he's in a, in a giant padded cell in this huge straitjacket. And, you know, I didn't know reality from, you know, it was all like a weird dreamscape to me and, and I just remember feeling very worried if he was okay. I was a little kid and I was just like, is that guy okay? Like, is he going to be all right? <laughs> And I was really worried about him, and I, that that was part of the intrigue. Was like, um, what kind of weird world does this poor guy live in? But the sounds were amazing, and I couldn't get them out of my head. Mm. It says the coastal scenes were filmed in May 1980, uh, East Sussex, um, by David Mallet. At the time, it was the most expensive music video ever made. And one of the most wow. memorable scenes being the shot of Bowie and the Blitz kids marching towards the camera in front of a bulldozer, which Bowie later described as symbolizing oncoming violence. So that's a lot to, for a kid to take in, isn't it? It, it is. Um, yeah, I actually I had the opportunity to have this conversation uh, with Bowie and, and tell Hey-o. him uh, about that video and what it did to me and how it scared the shit out of me when I was a small child. And um, and he apologized, and you know, he laughed at me, and and apologized for scaring the shit out of me, and and then I told him how worried I was about him. <laughs> um, so that was funny. Yeah, I'm absolutely keen to hear more, and just think of a, a Bowie moment that you've had with with the great man, rest in peace, that you haven't thought of for a while that you want to tell us about. I mean, part of the, you know going through the, but you know when I was going through all this footage and photos and stuff last year, there was a lot of stuff from that tour that I'd forgotten about. It was just such a nice time. He was just so nice and his whole band was so nice and every single last person on his crew of like 100 people that were in the travelling party, every single last one of them were just so nice and so Mm. cool. Mm. And you can tell that's because they all love the guy at the top that they all work for Yep. and that it's just one big travelling happy family. Mm -hmm. I don't know, so many things happened on that tour. Like I had to see a doctor 
in a, in a bit of an emergency with an allergic reaction at one point and like one of the band members was just like oh we have a doctor come and just come and just come this way and i was like oh okay right so i don't have to rush to a hospital or anything no just you know they just they you just have, really have looked after doctor. us yeah well basically yes um yeah um what was david just, what they, was david's bedside manner like now paul just cough for me yeah <laughs> look he he would have been a good doctor because one of his he was just so amazing at um just putting you at ease immediately mm. you mm. never it's it was almost it's almost like a magic trick like at no mm-hmm. point talking to him standing next to him hanging out whatever at no point were you ever like holy shit i'm talking to david bowie mm. because mm. because mm. you were just talking to this really lovely charming funny guy mm. um and it was only later that you would go <laughs> did that happen <laughs> But, you know, in the moment, he just had this almost like miraculous ability that he was just a totally normal uh, yet extremely charming and funny person. And maybe it's because, you know, a lot of the time when I'd be talking to him, it would be at sound checks or whatever, and he'd be wearing jeans and a T-shirt and a baseball cap. And no one has ever seen that (laughs) David Bowie. So when you're talking to that person, you're not talking to David Bowie, you're talking Mm. to a a nice guy in jeans and a t-shirt and a baseball cap and and the whole illusion is kind of shattered. I remember someone talking about how he would get on the subway in New York and he'd just carry like a Greek language newspaper um, <laughs> because everyone would just go, is that that? And then they'd see the newspaper and go, no. <laughs> Yasu. <laughs> so, so I guess that's that. It's kind of the same thing, like as the baseball cap. You just go, no, that that couldn't be. Well, you know? also, <laughs> you know, one of the most chameleonic rock stars of all time. Mm. It it yeah. kind of kind of makes sense that he could filter in and out into the everyday and the stratosphere and whatnot. Like yeah. he kind of built his career on it almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he did, absolutely. He, he just never put out the uh, the jeans and t-shirt record. <laughs> That's it. And it was, you know, it was like that at the shows too. Like there was, a, you know, the backstage, like if he was, you know, like there there was, you know, there was a, a bit of a, a bit of a loose rule, you know, uh, that was, you know, just no photos uh, of David if he's not like in his David outfit, you know. So, so basically, yeah, the guy who's walking around in jeans and a t-shirt is, you know, is a, is one person. And leave that, you know, leave that person alone unless you're just hanging out, you know. And then when the stage gear is on, David Bowie's in the building, you know, um, which is, you know, that's it's art, but it's also self-preservation. Mm. It's just clever. Yeah. So when you're growing up and you're seeing Bowie on TV and it, it's all mysterious and whatnot, uh, and, you know, when you're that age and you're seeing all these international stars or the, the the Diggy Stardust and whatnot, it's always then thrilling to know that there's also music happening up the road that is perhaps equally as exciting. So... When did that start happening for you? And what you said, like hunters and collectors, was that when it sort of started filtering? And it's like, hang on, there's actually this is happening in my backyard. Yeah, it was definitely um, when I when I heard uh, the hunters and collectors album. What's a few men? Um, and 
also knew at the same time that my sisters were going to see them play that very night and, you know, went just constantly to go to their shows all the time. And I remember seeing Midnight Oil on the TV heaps and, you know, that they were obviously massive, so they were on all they were on the TV all the time. And then, you know, my sister's going down the road to see them at the Sandringham Hotel within excess. Um, you know, so that was all like, oh wow, this is this is happening nearby. Yeah, that's and also the fact that, you know, I was used to seeing my mum get on stage and sing. So it all seemed very possible and yeah, it didn't seem like this far away fantasy land. What's the first Hunters and Collectors track that really shook you? Uh, it's a song off What's a Few Men, and it wasn't a, one of the singles or anything. I think it's called Under the Sun, uh, and it sort of has this you know intro that slowly builds, and then there's this point where it kind of kind of builds to a peak, and everything stops, and and Mark Seymour just sings like, and I still can't get the car started, <laughs> and he's and it's just this Australian <laughs> accent of this guy just kind of saying, I still can't get the car started, and that was the other thing that made me metaphor. go, wow, like music is real and visceral mm. and angry and mm, mm. and you can express frustration and it like that was a real moment that still sticks with me just hearing mm -hmm. this guy and he just sounded <laughs> you could just tell that he was wearing a singlet and he was in a sweat and he was pissed off mm. And that was different to all the stuff I'd seen on the Saturday morning music shows, you know, and it wasn't mm -hmm. a big budget. It wasn't David Bowie. It mm -hmm. wasn't the big budget. It was this very real, close-to-home, uh, visceral thing. And I think that's what kind of tipped me into, like, you know, that that world. You know, it wasn't too much longer that I was listening to punk music. When I had Summer 89, the album, I think When the River Runs Dry is on it, and the grit and the grime in your fingernails and just that real sweaty kind of Australian heat moment. Yeah, I could still, yeah. you can almost bite that song. You know, you can bite down on it because it's so, so fucking real. Yeah, and yeah, every time you'd sure. hear it, so the, the tonk of the hammer, it's just, ugh, yeah. just something else, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Although, you know, that song though, it you know, I mean, fuck, I, I love that song. Something for Kate have covered that song. I've actually, God, like still blows my mind. I've I've sung that song song on stage with hunters and collectors Fucking which cool. is just like blows my little kind of 10 year old head <laughs> apart but it that song though you know it has that same sort of studio production as like a bowie track it's a very mm. produced song uh and it's unreal but there's something about under the sun something about that what's a few men album that it's it's not so produced it doesn't have like it's just like it's really raw and a little bit, a little bit scary. I mean, I was eight years old. So, yeah, I think for for a band that obviously became so well known for "Throw Your Arms Around Me," which is amazing, but nonetheless, you know, like a veering almost a pub ballad. Hunters and Collectors were like they had more in common with like Jesus Lizard and kind of <laughs> like tough, kind of punk pub punk kind of stuff and yeah like the initially. birthday party you know yeah it was yeah. all like it was all grinding bass and really percussive elements yeah i mean like talking to a stranger is like, oh. you know they're, yeah they're amazing band yeah i think a lot of people yeah are unaware of the sort of phases of hunters and collectors you know you mentioned the birthday party earlier paul what's your experience with, with that group 
just like see like my sisters you know used to go see him uh so i was like aware of them um but i don't think i knew the music i don't think they played the music so much around the house probably because it would have scared <laughs> our you know christian mother a little too much but i remember i think seeing like the the live clip of deep in the woods uh mm-hmm. on rage late mm-hmm. at night and just yeah just being like whoa this is, you know, this you're, is. If you're afraid for David Bowie's life, for Nick Cave's life, you've sacrificed. You know, it was a similar reaction. It was like, mm. what, what deep, dark, intense world does this guy inhabit? And mm. I just needed to know more. And yeah, so straight after that, yeah, I, I sought out more birthday party stuff. All, you know, all of it, um, and you know, listened to it a lot. And then obviously the bad seeds, and yeah, incredible. Nick Cave this morning in the Red Hand Files, the email that dropped this morning, um, all about him meeting Charlie Watts after he'd done his one and only gym, uh, sort of, you know, this personal trainer at a gym, and he'd gone along and he was wearing, like, this small tracksuit that he bought from Amazon and a bucket hat and his, one of his kids, like, oversized <laughs> oversized um, gym shoes, and he, he forgot that he had to pick up his, uh, his wife, Susie, from the uh, Heathrow, and he drove to the the airport and went into the fucking <laughs> toilets and he's just coming out of the toilets with this bucket hat on and charlie walks walks past with this dapper suit and just gives him this look of like mm, he goes and it wasn't a mean look but it was very much a look of i'm i'm in supreme control here and you are clearly not <laughs> that's yeah. yeah well i i I, I can relate to that feeling because i saw nick cave in the airport in dublin just a couple of years ago and it was like seven o'clock in the morning and I was, you know, flying out having done a show the night before and, you know, was just like half awake and, you know, <laughs> not not at my best. And uh, Nick and Susie kind of strolled uh, through the airport and he was in like it's just an incredible, you know, <laughs> tailored suit, beautiful sweater, just looked amazing, seven o'clock in the morning and and just sort of like looked over our way and, you know, little sort of nod at the head, you know. Uh, it's a tough morning, fellas. <laughs> yeah, I just was like, God, to be that, uh, to be that stylish and cool at uh, at seven a.m. What's your connection with Nick Cave? None, none really. Uh, I've met him a couple of times, very briefly. Mm-hmm. You know, my connection is, you know, to the music. Uh, just, just you know, love his music. But you know, I've just I've been lucky enough though to. Something for Kate recorded our very first EP at a studio in South Melbourne and we were recording in the Studio A and we kind of heard this sound from next door and, and uh, we were like, well, hang on, what? It like, couldn't be. <laughs> and it was the Bad Seeds uh, in the room next door rehearsing for, I guess it would have been the 1995 or 96 Big Day Out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, we so we ended up uh, sharing uh, a studio space with the Bad Seeds for uh, a few days, and so and I was like nineteen, and you know Nick Cave was making me a cup of tea in the tiny little kitchenette, <laughs> and just sort of trying to awkwardly make conversation. No pressure. Yeah, exactly. It was just funny. I, like I walked into this tiny, tiny little kitchen, you know, and uh, and there's Nick Cave, and he's just like, "You want a cup of tea, man?" <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, <laughs> I was just, you know, I was just nineteen and kind of yes, please. Uh, it was all very new. <laughs> what a gem. You know? Yeah, 
And then, you know, I don't know, years later, we played our first show in Berlin and we were opening for Silverchair and it was like this, you know, 5,000 people arena in Berlin and we finished our set and we managed to, I don't even know how we did it, but we got into literally at the back of this massive arena across an alleyway, there was this tiny little club that held like 250 people and we got to watch the Bad Seeds play a Oof. secret show uh, in this Oof. tiny little club in Berlin for like 250 people. They were warming up for a European tour and it was just incredible, you know, like the Bad Seeds in Berlin in a mm. tiny little club. It was nuts. Can't make that up. You got some stories, brother. Uh, yeah, fun times. Mm-hmm. Around that age of 19, obviously sort of coming into the big day out, there would have been some huge, you know, life-changing moments. I went to all those big day outs back then and every year, you know, I'd be too stoned by three o'clock. I remember watching Spider Bait and I was just hanging on at the back of the mosh, just holding on and someone came over the top and just crushed me with their Doc Martens and I just <laughs> fell into this heap and I had to have like the next two to two hours just sitting by myself. My sanity area manager walked past and said, are you okay, Mikey? I said, I'm fine, Simone. <laughs> I'm fine kind of thing. So the, to be part of those shows and to be, you know, I think you played on the Triple R stage back then. Um, tell us about a, a big day out moment that, you know, really shook you and, and sort of perhaps even pushed you into a different direction in your career. Oh, wow. That's a good question. Jeez. I mean, there's so many. We we did a lot of big days out. Mm. Um, I mean, yeah, it was always... It was just always an incredible experience because you were on the road with, you know, this unbelievable list of bands and and everybody you know mingled the 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 backstage Mm. areas were always set up to be this big communal space where they encouraged all the bands to come out of their trailers and and actually hang out together around the sort of central communal bar area so Mm. it was just really easy to find yourself talking to you know i don't know whoever Uh, i met so many people doing those shows i think maybe one of the most memorable was I think the very first big day out run we ever did, and it was just East Coast. It was Brisbane, Sydney, and Melbourne, and we were on one of the side stages. But we were in between. Uh, Beth Orton was always before us, and uh, Joe Strummer and the Mescaleros were always after mm. us. Mm. And for whatever reason, we were like the only three bands on that side stage who had our own sort of tents back there because there was the you know big central communal band area but then for some reason we had our own trailers as well so that was kind of nice we ended up just sort of just being friendly and chatty with um with beth orton and her band and and joe Mm -hmm. strummer and his band and Mm. it was kind of that was kind of amazing you know (laughs) just um i suppose as a songwriter by that stage it's almost like the world comes in and for like a couple of weeks, you're almost kind of like testing your songs in this melting pot of all these other people are doing these interesting things from around the world. That must've been a curious and fun experience to kind of go, all right, well, this song holds up in this context. Maybe this one doesn't that what that person's doing seems really interesting. Like I'm sure it must've been a really sort of creatively inspiring time in that sense but did it also make you reflect on the kind of stuff that you were doing you know the the answer to that for for good or ill <laughs> honestly is just that we're just so stubborn and single-minded i don't know that anything anyone else is doing has really i don't know that it's ever changed our mind about 
anything we're doing or made us feel like we're doing something right or wrong or whatever. I don't know. That that I feel like I need to qualify that statement more. That's okay. It's it's Safe difficult, space. but I don't know. I just we do what we my attitude is always just that, you know, we do what we do. Other bands do what they do. It's all wonderful. It's all different. There's there's room for everybody. Uh why would we want to do something that we can already observe someone else doing? Do you know what I mean? It's um so yes, I saw many amazing, amazing things that blew my mind, but I always just kind of go, How do I get better at what I'm doing? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, how does that make me better at what I'm doing? While you're in America, Paul, uh, what are some of the things you saw perhaps live when you were seeing these four or five amazing other bands on the bill on a Tuesday night? Anything that really grabbed you as well that, that you can take and sort of take us into the room? Uh, look, I remember th- there's a band called Taurus and, and they don't exist anymore, but they were yep. they were made up of four guys who were clearly, you know, highly trained musicians they seem to be like jazz players, mm. um, and you know, I ended up becoming friends with those guys. And and Chris Morrissey, the the singer and bass player, he plays bass with Ben Queller and and some other artists as well, as well as like making these wonderful jazz records of his own. Uh, Rich, who was the guitar player in the band, now plays like pedal steel for KD Lang, and but they were just you know they were just these you know young New York muso guys who had all these other gigs, like sort of session touring guy gigs, but they, you know, they decided to form a rock band. And I think I saw their first show. I, I, I think I'm pretty sure they said it was their first show and they were like Taurus, the rock band, because cool. for them having, having a rock band was a novelty. Jeez, <laughs> they were an amazing, amazing yeah. rock band. And, you know, I've already, I've just sort of described for you the caliber of what mm. these guys do in other respects, but I was just like, wow, like amazing band. Mm. I, I just feel like every time I went somewhere to do a, a show, I saw something, you know, that night that blew mm. my mind and mm-hmm. it's kind of overwhelming. This is providing a lot of FOMO, this podcast, but it's also providing a place <laughs> where we, we can all just lean into this conversation and, uh, yeah, and sort of get some of your gems. Yeah. Something, something sort of after that, you know, say in, into, your, into your 30s that really came along and, uh, you know, slapped you upside the head. I mean, I discovered this band in New York and... Ten years later, I, they're probably still well. They are still to me my favorite musical outfit that's currently active. And they're a duo. They're called Buke and Gase. Okay. Buke is kind of shorthand for bass ukulele, and Gase is shorthand for a guitar that has two bass strings on it. Mm-hmm. And it's a guy and a girl, and. They play the, these instruments that they actually kind of made themselves and they play all this percussion with their feet, um, like a kick drum and, and some ta- – there's no snare drum generally. It's mm. just like a kick drum and a tambourine and and she just has the most incredible voice. But just the music they make for two people, I mean, I, it does not sound anything like a ukulele. In a, Sounds very nimbin, Paul. Oh, dude. It, no, it's – well, think – Think more like, I mean, it's a racket. They, it's more Sweet. like it's noise. It's noise and melody and rhythm, and it's 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 never predictable. You don't know where it's going next. And they've got like four or five albums now, and they've evolved a lot. You know, there, there's a lot more sort of electronic 
sounds in what they do now because they invented a you know a program that randomizes the stuff they jam on um they're just furiously inventive like mm. to the point of of making their own instruments that they actually play i mean they're amazing and and as i say for the past 10 years that they've kind of still just been the thing that i'm like what are they doing what are they doing have they done anything new <laughs> um i did get to see them live in new york in 2011 and it was at the mercury lounge which is tiny and like david byrne was there uh thurston moore was there like it just it was like a who's who because they mm. were just like so exciting everyone was talking about them yeah amazing be handy for you and marcus at gigs as well to be able to look around and see exactly who's there like i'm, I'm probably <laughs> half a foot small shorter than both of you so you can sort of case the room well us and thurston moore can definitely see each other across the room <laughs> marcus <laughs> where's kim kim is kim isn't here okay too far um <laughs> friends uh one more, Paul, if you can, just to share something you've sort of in the last five years or so that's really hit different for you. There's just so much uh, music. I know with Modern Medieval, you there was a little bit of sort of like embracing a little bit more of a love of kind of like 80s FM rock, some higher production values. And there's obviously the respect for Taylor Swift with the like that kind of like almost leaning into that pop sort of stuff that then attaches to the depth of experience and stuff that you already draw upon in something for Kate. Is there, you're starting to write new stuff. Are there parameters or touchstones at the moment that are kind of inspiring you? I mean, that's that's a really good point. Like, you know, Taylor Swift, I guess, has been something that I've always, you know, I've always known that she was a really talented, uh, fantastic songwriter in the sort of pop genre. I didn't necessarily you know, always listen to it for my own enjoyment. But I certainly, you know, uh, had a total admiration for, you know, the skill she has at crafting these songs. But then I did actually, you know, I really listened to uh, 1989 properly. Um, just like two years ago, I was actually, it was when I was driving up to Byron Bay uh, to, to record the album. And I was thrashing, basically all I listened from Melbourne to Byron Bay, I listened to Phoebe Bridges' first album over and over and I listened to 1989 over and over and over um it wasn't that I was looking for any references or touch points I just was really enjoying those two records so much and you know the one thing I did notice about those two records is just the treatment of the vocal just the way it's recorded and it's just so loud and clear and present and out front of the mix and I've always been so afraid of doing that so you know I just definitely with this record you know, the vocal is really out there and clear and present, and I'm really happy about that. But yeah, look, from 1989 and then when um, Folklore came out last year, and I'm a big fan of The National as well, so when I heard about that collaboration and we listened to that record, and I was like, damn, this is, it's really good. It's a really great evolution. I mean, you know, I'm not, I don't know what her master plan is, if there is one, but just to sort of maneuver into a completely different space, you know, mature as an artist and, you know, the folklore is not an album that she's going to dance around stadiums singing. It's a, you know, it's a whole different record and she just did it. She just did it without without warning or discussion or whatever. I mean, it's just a great record. And you were talking um, about with um, when you guys did Cardigan, discovering there's like this subtle cyclical chord change in the chorus that, uh, the likes of Taylor Swift doesn't 
generally get that much credit for the, the such the the tight sort of architecture and structure of the fundamentals of what she's doing and there's yep. there's actually a lot to learn from someone who can consistently do that yeah absolutely and i guess that's what it is about you know we use the word mature it's actually it's, it's really dumb mm. but in describing folklore it's it is it, subtlety is really mm. all it is that it's not all hitting you over the head with hooks there's just these really subtle movements that you're not even necessarily aware of they're not like grabbing your ears for attention but they're moving you you know they're just moving you this way and that way really gently and that's an incredible skill it's like someone's just slow dancing with you and you don't know how that happened (laughs) like it makes me think of putting you at ease makes me think Mm. of neil finn he's amazing at that where totally. there'll be like a, a three chord loop and then one drops out and suddenly you're somewhere else in this secret room of a song that you didn't know was on its way sort of thing. Mm. Like there's a, yeah. some people have it some, and you yeah. don't even know. That's mm. it. That's, that's a beautiful thing. It's beautifully put. Uh, the first song I'm going to put on after this podcast, gentlemen, is a Turkish band, Altin Gun. It's sort of like this rock and roll dub boogie. Really, really into it at the moment. It's got a lot of space. You can dance to it with your kids wherever. What is the first song after this is all said and done you guys want to each put on? Marcus, you first. I'm listening a lot at the moment to a guy called Michael Now. It's N N A U. And it's one of those things that, you know, just, I don't know, you somehow get served it on Spotify or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think I was listening to Cass McCombs or something. Anyway, and it turns out he's just one of those guys that's released a bunch of albums he's had like one review in his life or whatever i'm sure i'm probably putting him down he's probably a lot more successful than i think he is <laughs> but just you know those little corners of figuring out that someone's got a discography that you get to just sink into for a while and it's yeah you don't know anything about it there's no context i'm i'm loving having a little bubble of that right now where I, there's, there's, he doesn't really have much of a path online through this. Mm-hmm. So I'm just kind of taking it at face value. I'm really enjoying that. Nice. When you mentioned this band you discovered uh, from Turkey, the the first thing that popped into my head was a, a band I discovered from Greece uh, a couple of years ago called Naxatraz. Ooh, so how do you spell it? The N-A-X-A. So N for Nelly. N-A-X-A, yep. T-R-A-Z. Naxatraz Rock Band. Naxatraz Rock Band. Champagne podcasting right now. Hard psychedelic rock band from Greece. Latest yeah. out. Yeah, diggity dog. And it's pretty, pretty much all instrumental. I think it is all instrumental, but great. Yeah, it's great, great stuff. That sounds like a little lockdown treat. Uh, Paul, yeah. honestly, thank you so much for the bottom of our hearts of just giving us all your reflections today and just being with us throughout, you know, throughout both Marcus and I, our lives as well. So it means a hell of a lot. No, it really, really does. It's- it's yeah. my pleasure, and thank you for being in my lives as well. Uh, in my life, oh, um, lives. Or lives, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the Paul Dempsey in the uh, the baseball cap, and then the Paul Dempsey on stage. <laughs> it's two different. <laughs> Very good. All right, gentlemen. Thank you, listeners. Thank you for being lovely. Right. Support us. Get around us. Get around Paul. Go see the shows when they can play them. All right. See you guys. Bye. See you later. Thank you. Yeah.